I was reading, or I've been reading Eugene Peterson's memoir, who is, if y'all don't know who Eugene Peterson is, he was the, he's the translator of the Message Bible. Um, but apart from that, he's also an amazing pastor and um, cut from the same cloth, I guess you would say, as, as us, where he's just never been about frills and thrills and all that stuff. He passed away in 2016, but um, I've been reading his memoir, specifically the portion over him starting a new church. And, um, and he said this last night, I shared this with some of you, but then he went even further beyond that. And he said, um, back you know, in the time of the Greeks, there was first the idea that the sun and all the planets revolved around the earth because that's what you can see. So like today, if you sat in this spot the next 24 hours, you would literally see the sun go around you and then the moon go around you. So the idea was the earth was the center of the universe and everything revolved around it. Well, then later Galileo comes along and shows us that, no, actually the sun is the center of the universe or of our solar system and everything revolves around the sun. And, uh, and so he used that to say that for the church, so much of the church sees God and the kingdom and all that stuff as revolving around our own agenda. And so we have, you know, these budgets and these, which budgets aren't bad, but we have these budgets and plans and goals and all that stuff. And then we ask the Lord to revolve or move around that. As opposed to, um, he called it the Galileo um, opinion or view, which was, paradigm is the word he used, which was we as a church and everything that comes from that is going to revolve and move around God. And so, in other words, he's saying when we have plans, many are, plan, many are plans in a man's heart, but the Lord's way prevails. When we have all these plans, when the Lord comes in and starts to move those plans around, we just simply begin to submit to how the Lord wants to move. And uh, the Lord being the gravitational, if you will, force that moves us where we need to be. But as I begin to study that a little deeper, and this isn't necessarily, I guess it is part of what I'm talking about, but... As I began to study that a little deeper, I started to realize that Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts. So both of those, same author, Luke. What's interesting is the way that Luke writes both of those is in the beginning of Luke, Luke 1 and 2, he writes about the birth of Jesus. Okay, very familiar. But then in Acts 1 and 2, he writes about the birth of the church. And so, subtly, Luke is placing the birth of Jesus and the birth of the church in the same story. In other words, to say, uh, Mary, for example, was overshadowed by the Spirit and conceived and gave birth to Jesus. Well, if you go to Acts 2, the church was overshadowed by the Spirit and it conceived and gave birth to the church. And so you move on. But what's, what, what the Lord began to show me in this was... If we're not careful, you know, Jesus, God could have done so many things to save the world. It's God, right? You know, God could have snapped like, you know, total transform or not transformers, Avengers, and uh, could have snapped and everything, you know, changed or whatever. You know what I mean? Instead, the way God chooses to save the world is to be born to a poor family that remained poor his entire life. To be born to a poor family in a tiny town of Bethlehem, middle of nowhere, and live his entire lives essentially 
on the fringe. Jesus lived his whole life on the fringe. He was never the top dog in a religious organization. He was never the top Pharisee. He was never a governor. He was never an official. He spent his entire life on the side, kind of hidden. And to the point where he eventually is killed by those leaders and by those officials that he never tried to attain, he was killed by them. And through resurrection, he brought about the saving of the world, okay? And so it's really interesting when the church tries to have all these plans to become something that Jesus himself never was. You know what I'm saying? And, it, and I started thinking about our church and I was like, you know, Lord, I left, y'all know, I left, you know, a very, very big church. And at our church, the Lord has almost purposely kept us in a place that is hidden. You know what I'm saying? He's almost purposely kept us on the fringe where like we're not affecting who's being elected and we're not affecting the narrative that's coming out of the big church. But somewhere here in the middle of South Carolina, in a hidden place that no one is suspecting what's going on, the Lord is raising up, maybe you would say like a Jesus image that is coming out of this, that eventually, if we'll hang on a little bit longer, eventually, because of the hiddenness that the Lord has kept us in, will impact the globe. You know what I'm saying? And so um, with that in mind, I want to speak to baptism a little bit. So today, outside in view of play, the place that we baptize so many, I want to encourage you on a topic that we so easily forget about and then move on from, which is baptism. Remaining within the subject that we've been talking about, holy imagination, today's message is called, if you're taking notes or you, know, you want to remember what it's called, remembering your baptism. Remembering your baptism. So to quickly review what we've discussed the past couple of weeks, uh, within faith and holiness, or specifically the faith and holiness of God, faith, as, as we've seen and will continue to see, is not conjured up human belief, right? Faith is acceptance of God's way. It is trust in which, or excuse me, it is trust in that which has been given by God. That's what faith is. And if God is holy, which means other, and he is other than what we are apart from God, God has invited us to be holy as he is holy, which is what 1 Peter 1.16 says, and he's quoting Leviticus there. So essentially, God has given us an invitation to become something other than what is natural in just purely human terms, okay? How do we do this? We do this by faith. Why? Because faith is accepting a way in which, as Karl Barth says, it doesn't make sense. It's another way, okay? So salvation is an invitation to become, as God is, holy. And the way that we transition to that is by faith, which is accepting a way other than the way that is natural, just apart from God, okay? Listen to what Rowan Williams said about faith. He says, you don't acquire faith through some great move of the intellect or some great feat of the will. Rather, by that thing that happens when your imagination is turned upside down. I love that. The irony, so it seems to be ironic to us, is that we're called to experience salvation through faith, 
Yet faith is not something that we can do. Faith is something we can only experience. The entrance into that experience, I believe, is through the imagination. Likewise, salvation is not something that we can understand. It's something we can only experience. And by the experience of salvation, we start to actually understand. But salvation is wholeness. It's being brought back to rights. Righteousness was restored and placement recovered through what Christ did at the cross and resurrection. Jesus said this, Luke 19, 10, the son of man came to seek and save the lost. And I believe Jesus was successful in doing that. It is finished, actually meant it is actually finished. So salvation is not a present decision of the will which will create a new future reality. That's not what salvation, salvation is not a present decision of your will, of your own doing, which will create a new future reality. In this case, most people say heaven. Salvation is actually a past reality at the cross and resurrection that has created a new and present and future reality, which is the kingdom of God heaven, and then new creation. Salvation was accomplished apart from the will of mankind, for if we truly willed it, there certainly was no need for the incarnation. So salvation, and I'm going to explain this in a second, happened apart from our will because if we willed to be righteous, there would be no need for the incarnation and salvation. And Paul explains this, and I'll get to it in a second, and how it relates to baptism. But because we willed it not, and because we willed independence and godlike status of our own image and likeness, Christ had to do what went against human will, yet this was God's will all along. Why? Because if Christ accomplished salvation apart from the will of mankind, salvation is a new reality that exists outside of and certainly above the will of mankind. So this is what Ephesians 2 says. Paul says this, You were dead through the trespass and sins in which you once lived, following the course of this world, following the ruler and power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient. All of us once lived among them in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of the flesh, senses, and we were by nature children of wrath like everyone else. I won't teach on that today, but there's a great teaching that comes out of that too. Verse four, but God, who is rich in mercy out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. The language there is really interesting, okay? When we were dead, God made us alive together with Christ, by grace, Paul says, you have been saved. By grace, do you see the language here? How have you been saved? Okay, most of us would say, I was saved when I repeated a prayer. Paul says, you were saved by grace. And God raised us up with him in Christ and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now listen to what he says here. 
For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And then he goes even further. Not the result of your works, so that no one may boast. For we are what he has made us, created in Jesus Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your doing, but a gift from God, and it is not the result of your own doing. Why? So that you may never boast that you attained it by your own doing. That's what grace is. But there's a great irony in the gospel that Paul writes and in the gospel that we, most of us, have grown up in. But the, the irony is, Paul is teaching a gospel of grace. And that grace is unmerited favor. Literally, is what grace means. So, for us to have grace means for us to have something we did not achieve or else it's not grace. Okay? The irony is, most of us have believed that salvation is solely dependent on a decision that we make. So Paul is saying salvation is an issue of grace. Most of us in modernity say and think that salvation is accomplished by works. Works, Paul says, is what we have been made for by the salvation that we've been brought into by grace. So we're absolutely called to do great works, but we're called to do great works from the new reality that grace has unlocked in us, which is salvation. Not good works, which leads to salvation, which leads to, I guess, heaven. It's salvation, which leads to good works, which leads to the realization of heaven becoming the realization of where our good works are taking place here and now. You see that? God saved you the way that he saved you so that the salvation of man would not be accomplished, or excuse me, would be accomplished totally apart from man's doing. It's only by grace. Therefore, salvation is not and cannot be experienced by the will of man, no matter how pious we are. It can only be experienced as a grace gift. And this is why faith is the gate to salvation. Because what is faith? It's not conjured up belief. It's accepting another way that does not make sense naturally to the old way. That's what faith is. So the reason faith is what leads to salvation is because faith is not our own doing. It's embracing God's doing. Okay? Salvation is also a reality that doesn't make sense naturally, which is why faith leads to salvation. Now, where does baptism fit in, into this? And I don't have much more, but where does baptism fit into this? The first question I want to ask you, for you to think about, don't have to holler it out, but is what is baptism? What is baptism? Most of us have heard it said that baptism is a public profession of an inward reality. I've said that, okay? Right? Everybody, we've heard that before? It's a public profession of an inward reality. And that is actually, that's partially true. Baptism is something, however, so much more than a moment of public expression. Baptism is what is called in the church a sacrament. And a sacrament 
is that which imparts the grace of the kingdom of God to an individual. Okay? So baptism is literally passing through the veil from a life driven by the human senses to a life illuminated by holy light and life accessed through grace. Baptism pointed to originally, for the, for the Jews, it pointed to the Exodus. Okay, and I've taught on this before. When the Israelites literally passed through the waters in which their enemies were once and for all defeated. They went into the waters as slaves and they came out of the waters as free ones, the Israelites. Later, baptism was the remembrance of the Exodus that you are free because God has set you free. So when John is baptizing, he's baptizing as a point to remember what has happened in the Exodus. Okay? However, after the death and resurrection of Christ, baptism takes on a much deeper and present meaning. So this is the text for today. I'm going to read Colossians 2, and I'm just going to read a few verses here and then uh, talk about them, and then we're done. So can everybody hear me okay still? Cool, because I'm screaming. So uh, Colossians 2, starting in verse 6. Paul says this, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, continue to live your lives in Him, rooted and built up in Him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the universe, and not according to Christ. For in Him... The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have come to fullness in him who is the head of every ruler and authority. In him you were also circumcised with a spiritual circumcision by putting off the body of the flesh in the circumcision of Christ. When you were buried with him in baptism, you were also raised with him through faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in the trespass and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him when he forgave us all our trespasses. Listen to this. Erasing the record that stood against us with its legal demands. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in it. Therefore... Do not let anyone condemn you in matters of food or drink or of observing festivals, new moons, or Sabbaths. These are only a shadow of what is to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Do not let anyone disqualify you insisting on self-abasement and worship of angels, dwelling on visions, puffed up without cause by way of human thinking, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows with a growth that is from God. Do you hear that? Let the body, which as we know in Ephesians, Paul says is the church. He says that it grows with a growth that is from God. It, that's really interesting. So Paul says this in, in these, you know, 7, 6 to 19. What is that? 
13 verses. Doing math. In these 13 verses, Paul says this. He says that you've received Jesus Christ. Okay? You didn't, you didn't achieve Jesus Christ. You received it. That you live your life in him, which means everything is holy. If you live your life in Christ Jesus, then everything about your life is now holy. Because God is holy. Okay? So, and here's the other thing. Because we've been made this, because God made this apart from our will, we live in a reality in Christ, which means when we buck up against the ways of God, we're not moving from in Christ to not in Christ. We're in Christ and we're kicking up against the reality that is the only possible reality for us, which is being in Christ. So when people say, you know, uh, you make this decision and you're following the will of God. And if you make this decision, you're not following the will of God. The edit in that is if you decide to follow the will of God, you're following the way that's been laid for you. If you decide to follow a way that is not the will of God, now you're being dragged across on a way that you were made for by grace, apart from your decision, kicking and screaming the whole way. But according to Paul, because of the victory of Jesus, Jesus will stop at absolutely nothing to get you to a place of redemption, whether that be through you kicking and screaming or whether that be through you simply saying yes. Which is amazing because... That's exactly what happened at the cross. While we were still sinners, the verse I repeat every single week, he died for us. When we were not what we were supposed to be, he made us what we were supposed to be apart from the decision for us to not be what we were supposed to be. That's grace, okay? So third, Paul says, don't be distracted by reason. He doesn't say that the gospel can't use reason. But he says reason itself must come from an experience with the gospel, which is primarily Jesus Christ. Okay? Number four in this passage, he says, you have currently now been brought to fullness in him. So let that encourage any of you today. You right now are full in Christ. Okay? Which means we're constantly trying to live up to the stature of our fullness not trying to constantly attain fullness. Does that make sense? So I live the way I live not to become holy. I live the way I live to live up to the fact that I am holy. You know what I'm saying? Number five, Paul says, you have a spiritual circumcision. So in other words, the original covenant of circumcision was an outward act to prove you were other than. Israel, Israelite. Now we have received a spiritual circumcision. Why? Because it's apart from any doing of our own. So within us, we have been marked with a covenant marking which says they are mine. And Paul, if you go a little further into Colossians and the rest of his writings, explains that this is so significant because this is both Jew and Gentile being marked by this. Okay? which covers basically everyone. You're either Jew, and if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. So if the Gentiles have been brought in and the Jews have been brought in, Paul's essentially saying, 
what started in a family has now been expanded to ultimately all of Adam's descendants, which is you and I. It's huge. Number six, what Paul says in these 13 verses. He says that all of this has become a reality to you through baptism because it is in baptism that you attached yourself to the death and resurrection of Jesus, which is our new reality. And then finally, Paul says, let this alone be what defines you. Let nothing else define you. Let this alone be it. It's really important that we remember within this, baptism being that hinge moment, that baptism is a sacrament. So a sacrament is not a word that we use a lot in modern church. Um, some denominations use this a lot more. The modern church really doesn't use this word. Uh, an example of this is communion. Communion is a sacrament, okay? A sacrament is this. It's a means of imparting divine grace. And grace in the Greek is charis, which is, like I said earlier, unearned favor. Communion is another one. So baptism is in the same historical category as communion. I see y'all getting hot, so I'm almost done, I promise. Okay? Baptism is in the same historical category as communion. Communion is participation in the body and blood of Christ. And baptism is participation in the death and resurrection of Christ. Not for the experience alone, but for the new reality that the experience opens us up to. And that's why a holy imagination is so important. And I'm going to end with this. Holy imagination. Remember, the imagination is creating a new reality apart from, or maybe even above, the reality that is before us. Imagination is often thought of as strictly fictional. But in reality, imagination is simply an amplification of what is real. So one might imagine as a child that they can fly or that they are a tiger. Imagination is simply an image of a new possibility. So flying is a real thing and a tiger is a real thing and imagination comes in to illuminate possibilities for real tangible things that right now are not current possibilities. Now they may seem insane, like you know, like for you to be a tiger, that's crazy, right? But the point is, by way of your imagination, the Lord is opening us up to a reality that is far greater, that is more filled with more possibilities than any reality that we currently inhabit. So for us to make our way to, for example, the kingdom of God, we're going to first have to image something that we don't currently image naturally. Okay? But the subsequent question is, what does it mean, or what is the means, I should say, by which we can imagine something that is completely other? I believe it's baptism. Not baptism as a momentary announcement, but baptism as a daily consecration of your new life in Christ. Some traditions say this, for example, when a follower of Jesus passes away from this life to the next. Some traditions will say this, so-and-so has completed their baptism. So how do you live out baptism? Last part. Most of us, if we're being honest, 
rarely think about our baptism. But how do we make our lives revolve around what baptism represents for us? I believe it's a constant challenge to live a life not controlled by our senses, that is to say, to live a life by, you know, reasoning and logic and understanding, carried away by godless philosophical arguments and empty deceits, Paul says here. I believe it's trading that life for a life lived and controlled by faith are holy imaginations of a kingdom that is impeding evermore on our creation, living by God's reasoning, God's logic, and God's understanding, carried away by mystery and presence and awe and wonder and curiosity. A life fully alive, a life lived with joy, peace, confidence, and faithfulness in the Lord, not because you can see what proves His faithfulness, but because in baptism you have died to what you see and have come alive to an impartation of grace to see what cannot be seen otherwise. So I want to ask you these questions, and then we'll end. What stresses you out in your life that baptism has put in its rightful place? Just really practical. What in your life stresses you out that baptism, if seen correctly, would put in its rightful place. Another question. What have you not prioritized, as much as I hate priorities, but what have you not prioritized that within the context of our lives lived within baptism should be the thing that all priorities find their place within? And last question. What have you remained in control of that baptism requires you to release? What have you remained in control of that baptism requires you to release? So I want to challenge you today, and then I'll pray, that like right here in front of the place we baptize people, that we are living out our baptism. Whether we know it or not, we're living it out. We're living out the fact that we have died to what we once were and have now come alive in what we are. So living out our baptism looks like living out the truth of who we now are now that we have died and been raised with Christ in the kingdom. So I want to encourage you today, as you go about this week, as you go about the next weeks, to think about that. When you wake up in the morning, think about how am I living out the truth of my baptism today? Or when you get stressed out about something or you start to doubt God is moving in something, et cetera, et cetera. How does that fit within the new creation truth that I've been raised into? So I'm going to pray and then we'll be done for the day. Lord, I thank you that you up until now have kept shade over us in the clouds. Now the clouds are clearing. It's getting hot. So Lord, I thank you that you've also come to a great point in the sermon where we're going to wrap up. But as we pray, God, I thank you as you're a God that while we were running, while we said no, that your great love for us was so magnificent, was so awe-inspiring, that you found us even in our no and said no to our own no and brought us home anyway. I thank you that when I did not know who I was, what I was doing, and what my life was about, 
You didn't require me to do 20,000 different things in order to become what I was. You simply reminded me of who I was even when I was running. And all I had to do was come into agreement with what was real. And that moment culminated in baptism when what I once was was left under the water and washed away and who I am now has been brought back to life. And so, God, I thank you for that. I thank you for the truth of that. Lord, I pray that this week we'll be reminded of it and live in it. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.